Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the Let's Talk Higher Education edition. This week, we're explaining what's next for a controversial plan to overhaul Ohio's public colleges and universities, why former GOP chairman Matt Borges wants to delay his sentencing, what's inside the Senate's budget proposal, and why a nonprofit distributing opioid settlements has to share its records. Joining me this week for our last time in our Capital Adjacent studio is reporter Laura Bischoff. Hey, Anna. Hey. So our first topic is about a massive bill that would essentially transform campus life at Ohio's public colleges and universities. Senate Bill 83, as it's known, would restrict mandatory diversity training, ban faculty striking, limit what kind of things faculty can negotiate on contracts, create annual post-tenure reviews, mandate new history classes, force professors to post syllabi online, and penalize those who fail to cultivate what is, quote, a bias-free classroom. Republicans say these changes are a necessary course correction for campuses that have gotten, well, too woke. But Democrats, professors, and students all say that this would stifle free expression, not create more of it, and might lead to more censorship on campus. So very, very different opinions on what this legislation will do based on your like political ideology. Right. And this is supposed to impact like all the public universities across the state, which is what, 14? Yeah. 14 universities. And all the uh, colleges, too. So like Columbus State. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me is that there seems to be a, a national pushback on the idea that campus life is too liberal and that somehow people with conservative views are being shut down and not allowed to express themselves or express their opinions. It's interesting. Your story, I think, had a, was quoting an expert who said the real pushback comes back from fellow students, not necessarily from faculty. Yeah, this was really interesting. So there was a University of Wisconsin survey of their undergraduate students, and they did find that more conservative students felt pressure to conform in classrooms. They felt more hesitant about sharing their views. They had more feelings like that their views would not be accepted. So like the guy who I talked to from Penn America was like, that's an actual problem. But when you talk to the students, or you dive into the reasons why they didn't share, some of them cited their professors or concerns about grades. But the biggest reason was their peers, that the way their peers would shun them, would blast them on social media, would isolate them from events or groups. That was why they kept their mouth shut so much more so than like the professor. And that's, you know, a totally different problem, right? Like a professor can create a classroom free from bias. But if I think my friends won't want to be my friends... For the views that I have, that is its own kind of self-censorship. What do you think the chances are for this uh, bill to make it through the House? Well, there's rumors that it may go in the budget. So it could be possible that that's the way that it gets through. Uh, Matt Huffman said he wasn't opposed to that kind of idea, particularly because it's getting hearings in the House right now. Well, the companion bill. So there's another version of this that's already in the House getting hearings. So it could go through that way. But I will say if this ends up in the budget, it is going to be a fully Republican budget. And I think for the first time in a long time, we will see no Democratic support for the state budget. What does the governor have to say about it? You know, he hasn't said much of anything yet. He stayed pretty quiet on this one, I think, because it's probably so controversial. But You know, Ohio State University's Board of Trustees, in a very rare public statement, expressed like their total opposition to the legislation. And they don't often actually like take public positions like that. Yeah, usually they let their lobbyists do the talking in in the halls of power. 
Our second topic is all about the halls of power and former GOP chairman Matt Borges. He was found guilty of federal racketeering earlier this year, along with former House Speaker Larry Householder. The two men are supposed to be sentenced at the end of June, but Borges is asking for more time. Now, I'm not going to dive too far into the weeds on this, but Borges' attorney says two recent U.S. Supreme Court cases are relevant to whether he's actually guilty. Yeah, and the tricky part is that the deadline for filing the paperwork for appeal, grounds of appeal, the, um, the post-trial motions already passed. And then these two kind of potentially relevant Supreme Court decisions came just last week. And so Carl Schneider, who is Matt Borges' lead attorney, has um, asked the judge, uh, Tim Black, to give him a little bit more time to file, file these uh, motions. Yeah, one of the cases that I found really interesting was about a guy named Joseph Pereco, Prococo. I'm really sorry if I'm butchering that last name. But he was in, what you need to know is that Joseph was of aid to former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, and he was sentenced to six years in prison for accepting money from companies looking to work on a project to revitalize Buffalo. So the Supreme Court tossed that conviction, saying that it was basically prosecutorial overreach, right? That they assumed, based on some sort of ill-defined threshold, that the public had a right to a private person's honest services. So essentially, it wasn't a bribe because he wasn't a public employee. Right. So the Supreme Court stopped short of, like, tossing out that federal law. But I guess they decided that Joe, um, that he was not acting as an agent of the government. The second one was this Simili versus United States, and it narrowed the scope of how prosecutors can use wire fraud laws. And anyway, it all falls to whether or not Matt Borges was dealing with, you know, government agency operatives or not. You know, he argues that Tyler Furman, who was the whistleblower in his case, was a political operative who wasn't working as a government official when he was out collecting signatures to um, put House Bill 6 up for a referendum vote. So, I don't know, it seems kind of weedy, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, yeah, especially if it could impact whether he his conviction will stand, then it'll be very, very interesting. I think it's a long ways from that. I mean, you know, this is this is a the motion this week was like, hey, can we have some more time because these two relevant decisions yeah. came out, and I think the sentencing is still going to go forward. Our third topic is related to opioid abuse. So Ohio's Supreme Court this week ruled that the foundation distributing $444 million in opioid settlement money must make its records available to the public. So it's called One Ohio Recovery Foundation, and it had tried to claim that it was a private nonprofit corporation that didn't have to comply with open records laws. But the justices, as Laura reported this week, unanimously disagreed. That's right. There's this group called Harm Reduction Ohio. It's a nonprofit that works on reducing drug overdose deaths. And uh, it's run by a guy named Dennis Kashan, and he is a former reporter. And um, he tried to, you know, get um, to attend the first board meeting back in May of 2022. And he was told he had to go sit in an overflow room or maybe that he couldn't attend at all. It's unclear. And then he asked for the minutes and was told those were not public. So anyway, he, fi- he filed a lawsuit and won. And it, the, the cor- court decided this based on like a previous decision in which, again, another nonprofit was doing most of the work of a government agency and acting as a, a functional equivalent of a public office. Yeah, because the $444 million that they're distributing is part of a settlement deal that Ohio Attorney General Davios reached with three major uh, distributors of opioids. And so, you know, that's basically money that the state got th- for this settlement, and then they're going to be distributing it out. Correct. 
Our fourth and final topic is the state budget. So the Senate is currently working on its version, and we expect to see some major differences from the proposal passed by the House. Most notably, the Senate is looking at a plan to make all children eligible for a school voucher. Now, every kid wouldn't get the same amount. They're going to means test it, which is really interesting. I know that's kind of like in the weeds, but... Basically, um, you know, if you make up to a certain amount, you'd get the full amount, maybe like the $7,000 voucher. But as you earn more, that voucher would drop and drop and drop. So if you're like Ryan Day's kids, you might get like $100 instead of the seven grand. And it's a way of having universal voucher without the giant price tag that comes with universal voucher. So it seems like that may be the compromise there. What kind of impact might that have on, on public education if you apply this voucher to all kids make all kids eligible for a sliding scale amount. See, that's where it really gets interesting because there are a lot of existing private school kids and they think at least in the early years, there wouldn't be like a crush of public school kids going to private school. One, private schools just don't have the seats for all those children, right? Second, lots of people like their public school. They don't want to change. So they actually think the uptake of public school kids going to private school are going to be small, like less than 10%. Where the big money for universal voucher comes from is existing private school kids. There are tens of thousands of them right now already in private school whose parents make too much money for the voucher. And so the bulk of the cost of universal voucher will be those children. And most of the kids who are attending private school are what in parochial schools? Uh, yeah, for the most part. And then the other thing that they're really going to change um, that I did want to mention, they're talking about making a bigger income tax. So the House did a, a, a modest income tax. The Senate wants to make it bigger. They're also talking about putting a K-12 through overhaul in the budget. You said they're going to get a bigger income tax, but you're talking about bigger income tax cut, correct? Yes, yes. Not an increase. <laughs> Nobody's raising your taxes in these budgets. And one more thing before you go. Ohio's retired teachers are finally getting a small cost of living adjustment. The state teachers retirement system of Ohio announced a 1% increase in retirement checks starting in July. So, Laura, are they happy? Not happy? What's what's the vibe? Uh, probably both because, um, you know, last year they approved a 3% one-time bump cost of living allowance increase. And uh, that, you know, given how high inflation has been, this is really kind of not quite where everybody wants to be. And a lot of people retired in the, in the, at the time uh, when they were kind of promised that they were going to get a 3% COLA every year. Yeah. And that, that got cut, um, got reduced, and got eliminated by two, 2017. And um, just last year, that one little bump was uh, like a one-time thing. And so they're trying to balance you know, protecting the, the base pension system and continue to bolster its finances uh, against um, trying to help folks who've retired and we're really counting on that. And they're seeing their pension checks really eroded through inflation. And there was this weird thing at their latest meeting. So I just got to ask you about this. They weren't Where's Waldo signs, but they had that theme and it was Where's Wade? So who is Wade? Why is he missing? So Wade Steen was uh, appointed to the to the STRS board by Governor Kasich and then reappointed by Governor DeWine. And just a, there's been like kind of some infighting in the on the board for the last couple of years. And Wade Steen has been really pushing the uh, administration for more transparency on fees and has been pushing for restoration of the COLA. Anyway, there's been a lot of uh, discord on that board. And just the um, night before the votes were going to get tallied on the election of another board seat, the governor decided to revoke Wade Steen's appointment to the board and replace him with a guy named Brent Bishop. 
So there's a lot of Wade Steen fans who showed up at the um, board meeting on Thursday and with signs that said, where's Wade? Wade was not there. Brent Bishop was. And there was some audience members booing and kind of some sharp questions about, you know, what led up to the um, removal of Wade. Yeah. And the, the timing of it on the eve of the election. Right. So there's uh, I think there's that's issue is not going to go away with uh, Steen's absence. He has um, he's kind of said he's um, going to contest it and uh, he's hired a lawyer. Who knew that the STRS board meetings were like the hopping place to be in Ohio politics? Well, you know, we we live and breathe this kind of stuff, don't we? <laughs> Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like the Mansfield News Journal. That's mansfieldnewsjournal.com. 